entering this season, entering this college football season, only four different teams had been ranked number one in the playoff rankings. Alabama's done it the most 18 times by far, Clemson eight times, Mississippi State three times at number one, and Georgia number two. And through two weeks of this year, we have two first-timers in LSU and Ohio State, the committee making that right call this week after making the wrong call last week. LSU number one this week in the Week 12 rankings, Ohio State number two. Andrew Dowdy back on the High Motor Podcast. This is the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. And first, it's going to be Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News. Some college basketball stuff for him, some college football stuff for him, some rankings reactions, some Penny Hardaway, James Weissman stuff. And then it'll be Chase Kitty, per usual, with your Week 12 college football betting preview. I want to circle back to something that he said about Oregon a few weeks ago with the playoff rankings. He'll talk best bets, some stayaways. We're going to talk a lot about that Iowa-Minnesota line that's getting so much attention. Do some rapid fire and more. This is the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News dropping by to chat this week. Hey, Mike, thanks for the time, and I want to start with the college football playoff rankings coming out last night, the Week 12 rankings. LSU moves up to number one, jumping over Ohio State with that Alabama win. Alabama does stay in the top five. Minnesota into the top eight. Those are among the notable moves by the committee. Anything that you had a real problem with or anything, or excuse me, everything kind of come out as you expected in Week 12? Well, I think those are two sort of separate questions. Yes, they came out as I expected, and yes, there are, I have lots of problems with that. Uh, I, you know, the Alabama being where they are with very little accomplishment and lots of reputation is just more continuation of the sham that the college football playoff has been since its inception. Uh, it, it, the, the structure of the college football playoff is a joke. It should be there should be no way you should be able to win one of the Power Five conferences and not automatically be included. Uh, the, the idea that these four that these, that these uh, four positions are decided by a group of all-knowing, all-seeing people is preposterous. Uh, that the, the difference between the NCAA tournament selection committee in basketball and the college football playoff committee is that the NCAA tournament selection committee is is adding to a field that has an automatic entry to it. If you win one of the 30-some conferences, uh, however they decide to, uh, you know, to award their championship, if you win one of them, you are in the tournament as long as you are eligible. In college football, there is no automatic defined entry. It's the only sport we don't have it. I mean, it, 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 if, you're, if you're in the NFL, you know exactly what you have to do to get to the playoffs. If you're in baseball, Major League Baseball, hockey, whatever, and as well as the NCAA tournament, Major League Soccer, you know what you have to do. In college football, it's all this mystical stuff. It's ridiculous. And so you, you get a team like Minnesota, which has not lost the game yet, and, and then beat one of the top teams in the country, and they are rated eighth because their name is Minnesota. And then you have a team like Alabama, which hasn't beaten anyone of consequence, not a single team that's currently in the, in the uh, top 25 of the rankings, at least as the polls go. I didn't see the full list of college football playoffs, so I don't know if they have one sneaked in there or not. But uh, the AP poll, there was not a single top 25 victory for Alabama, but because their name is Alabama, they're fourth, fifth, excuse me. It, it, it's, it's continuation of a system that is indefensible on any level, but uh, it continues this way 
for reasons that mostly because the college football establishment believes that if we're not yapping about this, if we're not complaining and, and, and having this controversy, then the college football as a sport will be less popular. Yeah, you are right. Alabama does not have a top 25 win, whereas Minnesota beat then number four Penn State. So are you in the group that wants the eight team, uh, like you said, auto bid P5, and then do you want the auto bid highest ranked G5 too? Are you in that group? Yes, yes. Uh, that's been my position uh, almost since the very beginning. Certainly, uh, I was among those who wrote it very early on when UCF became an issue. Uh, there should be an auto G5 and then... Uh, two at-larges, and that should be how it is. And it's a very, it's a very fair system. Uh, you you don't need to expand the playoff uh, to be too large, uh, and then and then you have this circumstance where everybody gets in as you know as as a conference champion of the of the five major leagues. There's room for uh, an opportunity for a second chance for a couple of teams or for Notre Dame if they're qualified in a given year. And then there's an automatic G5. And I've had, I, I've had conversations on Twitter with people lately saying, well, that G5 should have to be undefeated. And my position was, well, look, um, if you do that, then Cincinnati won't ever want to play Ohio State. Uh, and you, and you'll, you'll totally screw up the scheduling because no, no G5s will want to play any P5s. And so who the heck are the P5s going to play? They're all going to be playing high school teams. So you can't do it that way. It's whoever the most qualified is. And most years, that has been a fairly obvious choice. Uh, uh, Western Michigan, uh, TJ Flex last year there, uh, UCF a couple of years ago. Uh, that, so it, it, most years, it's pretty clear who that team should be. This year, I'm not sure at this point. It might be Cincinnati. It might be Memphis. It might be somebody else. But there's usually a pretty clear uh, pers- uh, uh, university football program that fits that that designation. And you know, if, if in a given year, like this year, for instance, if Cincinnati were able to beat Memphis on the day after Thanksgiving and then win the conference, uh, the American Conference Championship, they're going to have one loss. It's going to be a pretty one-sided loss to, uh, uh, to Ohio State. And people are going to say, well, why would they be in there when they lost so one-sided against Ohio State? Well, I mean, teams change, teams improve. And at worst, it gives the opportunity for the first overall team, whoever that is, um, let's say in this case it's LSU, to get what many perceive will be an easy game. I, I would say that people maybe ought to stop perceiving games as easy after what we saw in basketball last night between Evansville and Kentucky. But uh, what, however you want to perceive it, uh, if Cincinnati is able to finish out its season with, with no losses against anyone other than Ohio State, it, will, it, it would have qualified easily under that circumstance with that automatic g5 so it, it's got to come at some point and they just the, the college football establishment fights it so hard and they tell so many falsehoods about why it can't happen and it's it's really it's it, it, it's it's just exhausting that we're still arguing about this 30 years 40 years after i started started covering college football you mentioned that Evansville-Kentucky game, and I do want to shift to college basketball here in a second. But uh, first, I want to ask you a question that I'm kick- I try to ask um, people that have been covering the sport as long as you have or been around college football as long as you have. And I, I mentioned Minnesota, you had mentioned Minnesota and Alabama, and right now we're seeing Minnesota really a true outsider, definitely during the playoff area and throughout 
you know, college football until um, since they, you know, dominated really in the 40s, had that Big Ten title in, I think it was 67. Being that outsider that has truly entered the playoff discussion with that Penn State win, we'll see if they remain in that discussion for the rest of the year and for the next two, three, five years. So let me ask you, what current outsider do you think has the best chance of entering the annual playoff conversation in the near future? Is it, is it, uh, is it, like, it, would Texas be considered a current outsider? Yeah, I guess when I, mean, I ask that be, question, and people have said, you know, Florida, because they're kind of on the outside looking in, Michigan, Texas, and this is why it's such a hard question. I'm kind of looking for, like, the pre-Clemson before they became the Clemson. And obviously, if you had that answer, you'd be splashing it everywhere. Everybody's asking who's the next UCF. If you had that answer, you'd be putting it everywhere. So, yeah, even though it could be Texas, I'm curious if you could even go a step further, and that's why I brought up Minnesota, because even though – I liked what P.J. Fleck was doing the last couple of years. I could have never expected a playoff run right now in my wildest dreams. Is there anybody even like a step below Texas? It's hard to, to do that year after year for a few reasons. One, uh, the, the machinery that's required to be able to be competitive at that level, uh, facilities, uh, the tradition, uh, money, and and just the the idea that if you are at one of those schools, so Ohio State, Texas, uh, let's say Florida, Alabama, LSU, Clemson, if you're at one of those schools, you're really not looking to go anywhere else. You're 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 where you need to be, and you're only thinking about maybe the NFL. Uh, but within college, you're probably not taking another job, and. It, it, at the at the next level schools, it's it's really hard to look at that at that level and say, well, if you know, if that guy retires, let's say if Nick Saban retires, if Alabama calls me, I mean, how do I say no to that? And and so th- that's that's the problem that that next tier of schools, any of the, any of the non traditional power school, any of the non traditional power schools that are in the P five conferences it's hard for them to continue to sustain excellence. You, you, you can get a great team like Minnesota has this year that's really well coached and has some very good players and has a, you know, an advantageous schedule to get some momentum and some confidence and now has it and then was able to get a big win at home against Penn State. You're able to get those years from time to time. Louisville, we saw a couple of years ago, they, you know, they, they, they had uh, Teddy Bridgewater when they were still, a, I believe, still in the Big East slash American and then they get Lamar Jackson when they move to the ACC, and they're able to do that. But then they're not able to sustain it, <laughs> excuse me, uh, for a continued period of time. So I, I think it's really hard to expect that anybody will be that on a consistent basis. It, it, like it's more like you rise up, you have a few good years, and then and then you try to do it again a few years later. It's a little bit like Major League Baseball in that way. The, the really, really wealthy teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees are always going to be there. And then if you're Milwaukee or Kansas City or someone like that, you try to get you, you try to put everything into the few years you have when you're good, when you when you get good young players. And and then maybe you try to add a couple of veterans and try to win a World Series. And then, you know, you're going to take a hit for that. But it's worth it because you, you can hang a banner. Shifting to college basketball, you did, after the James Weissman news broke, I think that was on Friday, I believe, you did a breakdown of the eligibility news, kind of going back to the timeline, the different pieces. I have a few things for you on this. As of right now, who do you see as being ultimately at fault here? I mean, is it Penny Hardaway and only Penny Hardaway? 
Well, I think, first of all, to say someone's at fault, you have to believe that there's necessarily a problem. I mean, and and so that's not necessarily, you know, I, I, I can't say emphatically that what he did was wrong to, to help Wiseman's family move. I can't say that because I don't know what his motives were. I mean, we, one can presume that his motive was that he wanted to have James play in high school for him. Or, but one could also look at it from an altruistic standpoint and say that Penny felt like he could help the kid get better. I mean, like Penny Hardaway, like his life's going to be made better because he, because he wins games at East high. Really? I mean, do you think that really changed Penny Hardaway's life? I mean, he's, he's sitting on how many tens of millions of dollars. Uh, You know, he's one of the most beloved figures in Memphis history. Do we really think that he needed necessarily to have a, a state championship as a high school basketball coach to validate his life? Maybe he just felt that, you know, if James played for him at East, uh, that that it would be advantageous for James going forward. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. Uh, I do. I think that it's problematic uh, that 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 payment occurred. And remember, I'm not asserting that the payment was occurred. Uh, I would like to make sure that this is on the record that Memphis stipulated that that payment occurred in their release on Friday night when they announced that this was all going on, they stipulated that the payment was made. So uh, any, any reference I make to that payment is, you know, based on the information that the university has provided. So yeah, one can say that's problematic and it shouldn't happen or whatever. And, uh, but Penny has been a pretty generous guy, not just with basketball players, uh, uh, but others in the Memphis community. Uh, he's been known for his charitable work, including the $1 million donation he made to Memphis, to the University of Memphis, uh, to establish the Athletic Hall of Fame, which is part of why he's, uh, the, part of why the program is in, is in hot water, uh, because he was then identified as a booster. Uh, and so, I don't know that there, that one can say that any particular person is at fault here. I think James was interested in getting to be a better player, uh, that, you know, that he wanted to continue to improve. And he has, he's, he's gone from a, you know, from a very talented player uh, or prospect in 10th grade to being a very accomplished high school player and very talented prospect for college. So, He's continued to improve. I'm sure that was part of what he wanted. Uh, ultimately, I'm sure he felt enough of a connection to Penny to to want to continue playing for him when Penny went to the University of Memphis as the head coach. So, I, fault is a you know fault is a tricky thing to assert. Uh, but I do think that uh, in terms of what what this means for college basketball and the University of Memphis as a college basketball program is a lot trickier than, than maybe all the principals understand. Uh, they, the, Memphis has basically dug in and said, we're going to fight this, but they're fighting it in a way that is highly unconventional as regards universities and their athletic programs. Fighting it is different than defying it. And they're basically at this point defying. And not very many programs have ever flat out defied the NCAA, and maybe this is a time when they can, they certainly have been able to swing a lot of public opinion to their side or media public opinion to their side. But in the end, the NCAA is still an authority in college athletics. And I don't think that this case is going to change that. And they may not, the NCAA may not prevail legally 
they may not it may not be their will that gets done, uh, but they, in the end, they still are the authority and they still have the ability to punish Memphis for defying them. So, in defying them, do you see any sort of precedent being setting? Because it, it seems like we're we've kind of reached, and this was unique because it dropped on the same day as the, the Chase Young news, and that's gotten a lot of heat from the NCAA too. Do you think that there's any sort of a precedent that's going to be set here? Where I know this is an extremely unique situation, as you laid out. I don't. Maybe this will come up in the future again with a coach doing something similar. But this is a really unique situation that that's transpired here. But do you think Memphis's way of of fighting or defying it, as you said, will set any sort of precedent for schools in the future that will just say no? We're going to defy your orders. Well, here's the thing. If you defy it now, you may get James Weissman on the floor for however long you choose to do so. And they're going to have, I believe, a court hearing uh, next Monday to further establish, you know, to further assert whether or not the injunction will stay in place that allows, theoretically allows Memphis to continue to play him. From the NCAA standpoint, even if Memphis is allowed to play him by the court, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to play him. And that doesn't mean they're clear of punishment relative to the NCAA's view of this. So uh, the precedent is being set, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a positive precedent because in the end, the NCAA will have its say. And there are rules in the NCAA rulebook that allow them to escalate punishment for that defiance. I can't remember that. There's some sort of name of, uh, uh, a particular rule that's in the book that allows them to do that. Uh, but whatever it is, it's not been applied in a very long time, but again, not because no one has gone down the road that, that Memphis is going here. I mean, a year ago, Kansas, when Silvio de Sosa was ruled ineligible for two years, they could have said, Oh, that's just horrible. We, we think this is a terrible ruling. So we're just going to play him. I mean, they could have done that, but uh, they also would have faced punishment, subsequent to to uh, Silvio's playing time and so they did not they they chose to sit out Silvio basically as ordered last year and now they have him back for 2019-20 and they face other problems in their program but they don't face one over having played Silvio that would have made those problems that already exist even more uh, an issue for Kansas. You mentioned a little bit ago that Evansville and Kentucky score on Tuesday night, the shocker, uh, Evansville going into Lexington and getting the win, and now we're, we're what, 10, 9, 10 days into the season here, but looking down the line at some of those teams not at the top of the polls, and that one was entirely shocking. That, you couldn't even really consider Evansville to be an under-the-radar team. They would be even farther than that, but do you see any under-the-radar teams that you really like after 9 to 10 days of basketball that maybe aren't getting the national love that they should be? Well, you know, one team that's done very well to this point is Oklahoma. Oklahoma already has two high major wins in their first three games. That's that's very good for your computer rating, uh, very good for your future in terms of NCAA tournament selection. I mean, we don't know whether, say, beating Minnesota is necessarily going to be a quality win. I'd suggest probably not uh, at this point. Minnesota's had a lot of injuries. They had defections uh, for, uh, for for the NBA draft that, that were punishing to their program's progress. And so it, it may be an okay win, but it probably won't be a NCAA tournament qual- high-quality win. But uh, they've, they've 
to be able to put a couple of those together in their first three games for Oklahoma is a good sign. Uh, Lon Kruger is as good a coach as there is in college basketball at maximizing the talent on hand. He's got some very good young players. He's got Brady Manick, uh, who's been around for a while, maybe is ready to be a you know an all all Big Twelve level type player. And so I, I really like what Oklahoma's doing, and it's it, it's possible for them to maybe surprise some people. And you know I don't know if they're under the radar now because they want a big game on Monday night, uh, but. DePaul, you know, DePaul has been so bad for so long. I mean, they are like if you're if you're reaching for someone in in the high major universe to use as an example of awful, DePaul is like now an automatic. It's like it's like a key on my keyboard, you know. Oh, I want to say somebody's terrible, DePaul. I mean, it's just they they've been so bad for so long. I mean, with almost no pulse, and now they look like they've you know a year ago they weren't quite as bad. They still weren't very good, but they weren't quite as bad. They were at least competitive in some games and won a few more. And now, you know, they, they've, they've started out really well. They were the, one of the first teams in the country to get the 4-0. Uh, they won a huge uh, game on Monday night, a uh, decisive victory over Iowa, put Iowa down hard, fast, and, and kept that lead for most of the game. And so I, I think DePaul maybe has a chance to have an exciting year, maybe, you know, People will want to go to Wintrust Arena and, and go see the De- Blue Demons play. Since they've opened that place, it's nice and new and all that. There hasn't been really any reason other than maybe the opposition to go down there for Chicagoans. But now maybe they, there's something there. And it, it, I think uh, DePaul was a fun team to have be good back in the, the Mark Aguirre days. And, and even when I started covering the great Midwest and Conference USA 20, 25 years ago, when I was in Memphis, they had some very good teams then, but it, it has all gone downhill over the last 15 years or so. And, you know, that, that punching bag, punchline, whatever you want to call it, maybe that's being, you know, that tattoo's being uh, removed by laser from, uh, from the Blue Demons this season. Hey, Mike, last thing for you. When I was watching that, that Kansas-UNC-Greensboro game the other day, I think that was last Friday, UNC-Greensboro kept that pretty close until halftime and then kind of fell off a little bit. But it's really easy to love what Wes Miller has done, still only 36 years old in year number nine, a really young guy. Uh, is he a mid-major coach or, or even somebody else that you want to bring up that could be in that high-major job discussion uh, well, five, six months from now? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised he's still there, to be honest. Uh, but uh, he's, you know, he's got he's got the pedigree from where he played and and whom he whom with whom he has worked, and now he's proven it on the floor. You know, one of the things that always bothers me about the way co- basketball coaches are hired is that if you've got like if you're if you're in the NCAA tournament, all of a sudden that changes who you are as a coach, uh, and and it's a preposterous concept. Now, I mean, it. it if you get to the NCAA tournament, you've done a great job. That's, that's a given. But if you don't go to the NCAA tournament, it doesn't mean you haven't done a great job. It's one of the reasons why I really liked Florida's hire of Mike White four or five years ago. They, they were winning 27, 28 games a year at Louisiana Tech. They were doing a great job. They were in a one-bid league. They'd have a stumble in the conference tournament, not make it. But did that mean Mike White wasn't a great coach? No, or a great coaching prospect, at least, I should say. I mean, he was, he was really good, and Florida's – reaping the benefit of that. Uh, they've, they've, been, they've had a very good program since Mike got there. Uh, Elite Eight a few years ago, 
uh, a really good group this year. Now they seem to have a, a, a one of those mental hurdles when they play Florida State, and they got uh, they got beaten pretty good over the weekend in that game uh, against the Seminoles. But I don't have much doubt that by the end of the year, uh, Florida is going to be in the hunt in the SEC, and so that it just shows that the idea that you have to make the tournament. Athletic directors should be smarter than that. And maybe they need to talk to different people uh, about who to hire. You know, Florida's ADs, you know, they've always made good coaching hires. So Jeremy Foley previously, now Scott Strickland, they've always done a good job of hiring uh, coaches because they look beyond the surface. It's the same when, when, when Jeremy hired Billy Donovan back in the day. Um, Billy hadn't been to the show yet. Uh, he had a couple of good years at Marshall and Jeremy looked at coaching talent, not at coaching accomplishment that he could sell. So Wes, you know, Wes is ready now, whether this team wins the Southern conference and gets to the show or not, I suspect that, that they're a little better position to do that. Now Wofford had their unbelievable team a year ago. And I think they got Greensboro three times last year. I don't think Wofford is quite the same team now with some of the players they've lost and losing Mike Young to Virginia Tech. I think I think Wes is is ready to to make that jump after this season, and I think it'll the the you know the uh, the funny thing about this whole rant I've gotten on, gone on here is that by the end of this year I suspect that he'll have that NCAA tournament imprint on him, and then it won't be that difficult for him to move up. All right, that's Mike DeCourcy on Twitter, at TSN Mike. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot for the time this week. Uh, you take care and enjoy the rest of the uh, football and hoop seasons. Thanks for having me on. Chase Kitty of Richmond VA, back on the show, back to tell you how to win some money in Week 12. And, Chase, I want to get to Iowa-Minnesota in a minute because that line, as I said to you before we hopped on here, feels like that line's kind of getting a lot of attention from people on the Twitterverse that don't usually talk about college football. But first, I want to circle back to something that you said on You're Wrong, I think it was like two or three weeks ago about Oregon. You said, I don't want to get this wrong here, so refresh my memory and the exact language of it. I think you said something to the effect of that Oregon has the inside track to the playoff, right? I did. I, I, I think that's exactly what I said, is that I think they have the inside track to the playoff now. And what I meant when I said that was not that if they went out there in, what I meant was if they win out and the other things happen that I think are going to happen, I think they, they're going to be right there at the end to maybe nab the four spot. And do you, and then I guess I wanted to bring it up because it feels like at number six now, and even though Alabama's five, and I don't want to talk about Alabama again because we talked about Alabama so damn much on Sunday, but it feels like what you said, and that's why I want to bring it up again, what you said looks pretty damn good right now because even though they're behind Alabama and Georgia, it feels like Oregon is in a really, really good spot. Yeah, so that's that's exactly right. This is sort of exactly what I what I foresaw a few weeks ago. Oregon's just going to keep winning. They get to probably, you know, we think, play Utah in the Pac-12 game, assuming nothing crazy happens between now and the end of the regular season. Utah's right there in the top 10. If they keep winning, they're going to stay in the top 10. That's a great last data point for Oregon. We know Alabama can't really move up any more than this unless something absolutely crazy happens. So if Oregon wins out, they're likely to jump Alabama, even if Alabama wins that Auburn game. They're not going to play in an SEC championship game, and there's just more depth here at the top than a couple years ago when Alabama got that four spot over Ohio State. Georgia and LSU, if you know all things hold right now, 
they're probably going to have to play each other in the SEC championship game. So one of those is going to lose, and if LSU wins, Georgia probably falls out. Uh, I don't see Clemson losing, I don't see Ohio State losing, and I don't see LSU losing. But right now, you kind of have to like Oregon's position, or maybe even Utah's position, for that four spot. I think you can even go down to Minnesota, too. I think that even though Oregon, Utah, Minnesota are 6, 7, and 8, obviously Oregon and Utah can't both be in that discussion for the four seed um, come that post-conference championship game. So you look at, like, 6 through 8, and I know we can... We can also maybe put Oklahoma and Baylor in there if they went out. Yeah, maybe. But it seems like 6 through 8 is in a great spot right now, arguably a better spot than 4 and 5. And with, I mean, yeah, Utah doesn't have the, the tiebreaker versus USC because they lost to USC back like in, in mid or, or late September. Uh, that one game out in L.A., I think it was like a 7-point game. But anyways, yeah, I think that their teams are both on track to make it to the Pac-12 championship game. And because, it doesn't seem like the Pac-12 champion is going to have two losses. That seems unlikely. So then the discussion becomes Minnesota, and I and I think that um, Reese Davis mentioned this, and it's, maybe we should talk about this more coming up here on Sunday, depending on what happens with that Minnesota-Iowa game. But Minnesota might be able to afford a loss. I mean, even though they're at number 8 at 9-0, and they don't have that loss that Oregon or Utah does right now, and Oregon's Auburn loss isn't looking as great as it was week 1. So Minnesota might be able to afford a loss where – they don't really even need to run the table to jump Oregon and Utah. Then, depending on what happens, SEC championship game. So, even though Oregon is number six, I think you were. I think what was it? Two or three weeks ago when you said that, and I, I kind of pushed back a little bit though. But it seems like you were dead right on that. Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, of course, <laughs> I'm awesome. What can I say? Uh, no, it, with with Minnesota. I like the idea that they can afford a loss because of the cushion they have in the Big Ten West. Ultimately, if they want to get into the playoff, they have to beat Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game. Uh, so if they lose to Iowa this week, or they lose to Wisconsin, but they end up winning the Big Ten West and then beating Ohio State, I think they're in. So to some degree, I agree with what Reese Davis is saying. I, what I wonder is, if you can't survive Wisconsin or you know Kinnick on the road... Can you are you good enough to beat Ohio State? Because this really looks like maybe the best Ohio State team in a decade. Yeah, it kind of including... shifts the conversation there. We're no longer talking about the actual resume of Minnesota. And yeah, it, it, it is in within the realm of possibility with how poorly top five teams have played in Iowa City historically. And it's not a primetime game. All those numbers that favor Iowa are primetime games, but still a three o'clock game in Iowa City. Yeah, it's still like within the realm of possibility that Minnesota could go down and lose that game to a rival in a hostile environment and still beat Ohio State. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't put my money on. But let's let's kind of table that conversation. Let's get a little bit deeper into that on Sunday, depending on what happens with that game. But I want to talk about that Iowa Minnesota game. It opened at Iowa, uh, two to three point favorite. Most were around two and a half or three. And like I said, this line kind of got a lot of attention. I feel like from people. Uh, college football writers that don't necessarily talk about betting or follow betting or are hardcore bettors because everybody was surprised. I wasn't that surprised for the reason I just mentioned, how hard it is for top 5 to 10 teams going to Iowa City and win. Were you shocked by this, and do you have any feel of what you're going to do with this game, or are you just going to leave it? Uh, not only was I not shocked by this, if I was setting the line, I would have set it exactly where it was set. Uh, I would have hung Iowa as a three-point favorite. 
Uh, the thing people have to remember, and I think you nailed it, it's a lot of college football writers that they're they're really good at the football stuff, but they don't necessarily have a ton of the gambling context. This is really common. It's really common to see ranked teams go on the road to play slightly lower ranked teams and the lower ranked team is favored. What's less common is seeing a top 25 team go on the road to an unranked team and seeing the unranked team favored. It's so uncommon that when it does happen, the unranked favored team almost always wins. Like you can go find stats on it over like the last 10 or 12 years, what that unranked team's uh, record is against the spread in that scenario. It's very high. I think we actually probably even talked about it earlier this year on the podcast. It's almost an automatic bet for me when I see that unranked favored team. When you look at this particular game, Iowa-Minnesota, Number one, you have Minnesota coming off the program's biggest win in, I don't know, how, how long would you say has it been since Minnesota had a win this good? Ever. I mean, that's what I was kind of going to the opportunity, excuse me, going into the game. Everyone was saying this is the biggest game. I was saying it's the biggest opportunity that they've ever had. And yes, they've won national championships, but let's just be honest, college football is just different. It's just different now than it was in the 40s, than it was when they won their last Big Ten title, I think in 67. So I think it was their biggest one ever. I, I don't necessarily think that's crazy. So you have a team that's coming off maybe their biggest ever win in 100-plus years of football. They're going to go to a place that's historically hard to play at for ranked teams. I was the favorite. I like Iowa. I think Minnesota loses here. Uh, I'll tell you the, the bet that I like maybe even more than Iowa. The total here is 44-and-a-half. Iowa is something like... Two and seven to the under this year. 44 and a half seems like a really high number for this game. I thought it was going to be like 38 and it's 44 and a half. I like the under here. You know, the column edge sorting that I put out every, every Thursday on Hero Sports. I think we're like nine and four when I bet unders this year. We're two and oh in Big Ten unders. And I actually think both of those were Iowa games that I took the under and they both cashed. So, this I, I'm not telling you definitively right now this is going to be in the column, but the under in this game is definitely on my radar. It has a very good chance to be one of the six plays. I think it cashes. I think this is a low-scoring game that Iowa pulls out because that's where they thrive. And this is not a vintage Iowa team, right? Kirk Friends has had way better teams. Uh, so I, I don't I don't know. I, I think Iowa's going to pull this one out, and I think it's going to be a low-scoring game, and I think... It's going to be exactly what you think it's going to be when you think about Iowa and Minnesota playing. I do wonder what, quickly I do on this game, I do wonder what that over-under total would have been if Minnesota didn't come out and basically tear through a Penn State defense that had been borderline dominant for the entire season, um, putting up 31 points, putting up 400-plus yards. I think Tanner Morgan was like 18 of 20 passing, and most of his 20 attempts, nobody was by the receiver. He probably could have been 20 of 20 in that game. So I wonder what that line, uh, the over-under, would have been before that game, and now that Minnesota basically tore through what was widely considered to be a top-10 defense in the country, I wonder if that shifted it uh, that much. All right, let's do some rapid-fire chase. I have eight games this week for you. Let's stay in the Big Ten. Michigan State at Michigan. Right now I'm seeing Michigan a 13.5-point favorite at home. The total on that game, 44. Man, this is such a good place to bet Michigan State. All right, they're coming off a home loss to Illinois. They're being a little undervalued. Clowns like us are doing what would happen if Mark D'Antonio got fired segments on the podcast if you missed our last episode. 
Uh, so Michigan State's public stock is very low right now. But go look at the head-to-head history between Michigan and Michigan State over the last 10 years. You tell me if you're comfortable laying Michigan minus two touchdowns. This got opened at 14. It's already been bet down to 13.5 by pros. I think Michigan State's the side to be on here, and I think that's probably uh, reinforced by the idea that the total here is 44. Catching two touchdowns on a 44 total, I mean, that's that's a pretty strong play. Let's move away from the Big Ten. Uh, I want to ask you about Navy at Notre Dame. So Notre Dame is a 9.5-point favorite against a Navy team that came in at number 23 in the Week 12 playoff rankings. The total on that game all the way up to 54. Does that seem high for you? You know, it does uh, at first blush, and I actually did a lot of digging on this uh, on this game for you. I, just like you thought, uh, thought maybe this total's a little high. So I started doing some research. First of all, seven of the last eight Notre Dame Navy games have featured 55 points or more. Seven of the last eight. Number two, service academies, Air Force, Army, and Navy. We like to think with those teams, you know, a lot of option, a lot of run game, a lot of the clock running. Give me the unders in a lot of these games. That's sort of the public scouting report on those teams. Uh, and, and not without good reason. But when you go and look at those three schools and their records on the total this year, the over is 14-12-1. So this is another great example of something we talk about on this podcast a lot. Vegas and odds makers manipulating public knowledge to their advantage. They are setting lines where they can manipulate your thinking the under is the play and actually get on the side that they want to be on, which is the over, so they can win more tickets. So 14-12-1 for the over for those three schools. Seven of the last Navy-Notre Dame games, 55 points or more. I actually think the over is not only a good play, but a sharp play. I thought we were done with the Big Ten, but I put one more in here this week. This is a game with a 61-point total, but the line is 52. And I believe if I saw this correct, a couple of people had named or had mentioned that this was the highest road uh, road favorite uh, of all time or in the last decade or something like that. Ohio State, 52-point favorite at Rutgers. How can you possibly take Ohio State here, even though – the it seems like Ohio State is going to smash them, just like they smashed Maryland. But as you said on the podcast before, when that number gets into the high 30s, into the 40, now at 52, is that just too high? Yeah. When you're talking about 52, there there could be some new school betters who tell you, uh, you know, Ohio State's so good and Rutgers is so bad that we're going to lay it. This is a non-play for me. You cannot, in good consciousness, lay that big of a number. I don't care who the teams are. An interesting thing that I saw when I was researching this game, uh, as of right now, the spread is 52 and the total is 61. The numbers that I saw, it opened as Ohio State minus 50.5, and the total opened at (laughs) 51.5. Yeah. Let's move on. I just wanted to get your take. I knew what your take was going to be on that. But I just wanted to hear you kind of pound it back into our heads. That number is just too high. Uh, let's go to the SEC. Georgia at Auburn. Georgia, a three-point favorite at Auburn. The total on that game, a little bit lower than we're going to be talking about the rest of these games. That's only at 43. Yeah, I, I, like, a couple of, uh, I like a couple of sides here. Number one, I think Auburn is a very strong home dog play. I think we're getting into that part of the season where people are going to start to bet narratives. 
So people are, are going to be inclined to bet Georgia because Georgia's in the mix in the national title picture, and people want to see them continue on that trajectory. When in reality, Auburn is a really strong team. It's true that Georgia may have more to play for, but Auburn's defensive line is going to give Georgia's fronts fits all up and down this game. And at plus three, I think there's good value there, particularly when they can win outright. This this rivalry, this back and forth that Georgia and Auburn have had over the last five or six years, it has been intense. So I like Auburn as a home dog. And you mentioned the total. So the total in this game is actually all over the place. It, it's You can find it as low as like 41 in some books. It, it is also at like 42 and a half, 43. It's kind of all over the place right now. Uh, if you find one of those low numbers, I actually think there's a lot of value on a counterplay on the over because it was hung around 45, 44 and a half. So if you f- can find it where it's come all the way down, I get that this is an SEC game, but 40 and a half, that's too much line movement. I would take the over. And if, you know, Georgia ends up winning 21, 20 or something like that, that favors both the dog play and the over. And I tell you one more thing. Uh, the spread is kind of different at books too. Certain books have Georgia at 2.5. Other books have Georgia at 3. This is a small thing, but it's something that sharps do. You can go around and find Georgia at minus 2.5 at some books, get a ticket there, go across the street to another book, find Georgia at minus 3 and bet Auburn, and then hold both of those tickets. I know that seems ridiculous if you're more of a casual better, but that's something that pros do to have uh, sort of both sides and uh, it, it works pretty well. You'd be surprised. This next one is a game that, that we talked about, I think, like in late September, early October, when we did that episode saying that, that these Dark Horse teams, you actually need to keep an eye on them for the playoff. And two of those teams are still in that playoff on Baylor and Minnesota. At the time, it seemed like that segment might be a little bit uh, too early, but that actually worked out pretty well. And the third team in that was Wake Forest. Wake Forest dropped a couple of games, got smashed by Virginia Tech, as you predicted. Well, we had talked about if they were to make it through that, that path unscathed, go down to Clemson. If Wake Forest wins that game, suddenly Wake Forest is a very, very real playoff contender. So Wake Forest at Clemson, now that line is all the way up to 33 points. Clemson, a 33-point home favorite. The total on that game, 59. 33, excuse me, 33 too high for Clemson. Yeah, I don't really want to take a side in this game. I think Clemson opened at like 31, and they're already up to 33 or 34, depending on your book. I think there could be some value in the under. I think Wake Forest come out lethargic because they started the season so nicely, and now it really seems like the wheels are falling off. They lose that game to Louisville. Now they've lost to Virginia Tech. They just, I think it was announced earlier today that Sage Surratt, who's sort of their one of their better wide receivers, some might say their best wide receiver, uh, he's now gone for the season. So I do think there is a possibility that Wake Forest comes out and just totally gets smashed here, something like 49 to 10 or 45 to 10. That that's absolutely on the table. I just don't want a part of this game. Let's go to I wasn't going to do the Big 12, but I want to hold that Oklahoma Baylor game last. So let's go to UCLA at Utah. We talked about Utah being in a pretty good spot along with Oregon. They just need to win out to avoid any sort of tiebreaker scenario with USC. UCLA at Utah, Utah 21-point favorite at home, 51.5 is a total I'm seeing here. Yeah, this is another game I really don't necessarily want to side on. Utah uh, it has been pretty consistent this year, but 21 is a big number to lay. And Chip Kelly's UCLA team is a little bit like the West Coast Miami this year. 
I just don't know what they are. It seems like they're drastically different from week to week. You know, they're completely out of games. Then they win games I don't think they, they're going to have any shot at. Uh, so I just want to stay away from that. But I would say 21 seems like a very big number. And when you get to November, a lot of times it's for these big teams that, you know, have top 10 rankings and they have playoff aspirations. It's just kind of survive in advance. It's stay healthy. It's don't blow it. Uh, 21 is a really big number. If you made me bet, I would probably bet UCLA, but I don't want to side in this. Yeah, you said the offense finally moving. It's like that fourth quarter comeback at Washington State kind of jump-started them a little bit, didn't play well against Arizona. But since then, uh, four straight games are riding three straight wins, and those four straight games they've scored at least 30 uh, points in all of them, 31, 34, 42. And then uh, a couple weeks ago before the bye, they beat Colorado 31 to 14. Like I said, Big 12. First, let's do Texas at Iowa State. Iowa State is a full touchdown favorite in this game, and the total is getting up there. It's at 66 and a half. I also thought it was high, and then I dug into it a little more, and I saw that this was a pros versus Joes game. A lot of public betters are on Texas plus the points. A lot of the pros are on Iowa State laying the touchdown. Uh, I will tell you. Iowa State is the side to be on here if you're going to take a side. And it's not because I feel like, it's not because I think Texas isn't good, though I don't. Uh, it's not because I'm really high on Iowa State, because I'm not. Uh, it's just looking at the numbers. This is a fishy line. A lot of the pros are on Iowa State laying the full touchdown. So if you're going to be on this, do not back Texas. Bet Iowa State. Let's talk about the big one Oklahoma at Baylor College Game Day uh, in Waco this weekend. Oh, this is the one that surprised me. A total of 67.5. Didn't surprise me too much. I think this could be a 40 to 30 type of game. Oklahoma is a 10 point favorite at Baylor. I mean, you've said multiple times, I think as recently as Sunday, you think Baylor is just going to win this game. Does that mean that you are fully on Baylor this week at plus 10? This game so much reminds me of LSU Alabama last week. And when I, when I say that, what I mean is I talked all year about how I thought Alabama was overrated. I think LSU is really good. I thought they were the number one team for a while. But they were a surprising underdog in Tuscaloosa. So I said, you know, my head tells me LSU is the better team. My gambling background says if you're going to take a side in this, you have to bet Alabama. It's Alabama or pass because this number is fishy. Now, a lot of times when I'm in that predicament, I stick to my gambling guns and I'm right most of the time. Last week, I, I, I mean, in the column, I led the column with like, do not bet this game. There are way better games to bet. Stay away from this. My my head would have been right, like right. LSU is the better team. They won on the field as a six and a half or seven point outright underdog. Uh, it's sort of the same thing here with Baylor. I think Baylor is straight up the better team here. I think they are the best team in the Big Twelve. I think they're going to win the Big Twelve championship. Oklahoma is a ten point favorite in Waco, so my gambling background tells me this number is really fishy. And you should be very wary of Baylor here. I dug into a little more past that. And maybe it's because I was trying to talk myself into betting Baylor. I really couldn't tell you here. But when I when I looked into it, I saw an absolutely even split among tickets for Oklahoma minus 10 and Baylor plus 10. And we, we've talked about this a lot. The goal of a point spread is not to accurately describe the difference between two teams. It's to draw equal action. And at minus 10, that's exactly what books have done. They have equal action on both sides. So 
I'm not telling you to bet Baylor, even though I think they're going to win outright. I'm definitely not telling you to bet Oklahoma as a 10-point road uh, favorite. But it is interesting to see that at this number, the books have exactly what they want. They have a lot of people that are on both sides and in relatively even distribution. The books are happy. What happens after that, I don't know. But I've been talking for weeks about how I think Baylor's going to win this game outright. So if you're making me pick, Baylor plus 10 is the side to be on. But this is another one of those games where my analyst brain and my gambling brain are at total odds with each other. Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot from that game, a lot from this weekend, like Minnesota-Iowa, Baylor-Oklahoma. It feels like we're eliminating, I mean, Iowa's not in that race, but it feels very possible that we could eliminate two teams from the real playoff race, depending on what you actually think of Oklahoma's chances. If they get to 12-1, and they're obviously going to be in that discussion. I don't know if they'll actually make it in there, but yeah, it seems like we could have a couple, I mean, that game will for sure probably eliminate somebody, depending on what you think of Baylor at 12-1 and if they were to come back and win the Big 12 championship game, but it seems like we have a potential elimination game there in Waco. Okay, I'll be back per usual on Sunday morning, wrapping up what could be a very interesting Week 12. Again, looking ahead to Week 13. Again, big thanks to Mike DeCourcy for chatting this week, and thank you to you, sir, Chase, for the betting tips uh, for the podcast. Always love ratings and reviews and subscribes. Those are much appreciated if you have a few seconds this week. We will see you back here on Sunday morning. I saw a friend today, it had been a while And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces